Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Yes, yes, y'all. Before we get into this episode of Small Doses Podcast, let me hip you to a few things. Your girl is back on the road, on tour and whatnot. I will be in Dallas, Texas on Sunday, February 25th. I'm doing two types of shows, all right? I'm doing stand-up, but I'm also doing I've Been Knowing Live. If y'all are in my DMs, if y'all are commenting, if y'all are finding yourselves saying, dang, like, I really don't know what to do about elections coming up. This is the space I've created for us to share our knowledge, our concerns, not only about the now, but about the future right? Because it's not going to stop just at now. So I've created this space for us to get together to educate each other. So hopefully, if you're not going to be in Dallas, you'll tell somebody else to be there, all right? That's going down again, February 25th. Get your tickets at amandaseals.com. I'm also going to be in Birmingham in March. I'll be in Stanford, Connecticut in April. I'll be in Baltimore in May. So keep a lookout for when those tickets are going on sale again at amandaseals.com. While you're there, Try signing up for my newsletter, okay? I really feel like the best way to be in contact with y'all is to not have to have these pesky Zuckerberg and Metas and all these things in the mix. So the newsletter is a great way to do that. We get about two newsletters every month. One gives you updates on what's coming up on Small Doses, what's coming up in terms of my shows, et cetera, et cetera. More of like promo, just to keep y'all up to the date of things in the ecosystem of Amanda Seals. But the second newsletter is giving y'all information that we're talking about in the ecosystem of Amanda Seals. So you hear me talking about Zionism on the podcast, but we're going to give you more information in the newsletter. You hear me talking about shows that are good to watch and shows that are a waste of time on my radio show. We're talking about it in the newsletter. We're highlighting organizers when I'm going to different cities. We're giving you more info about how to support those people's works in the newsletter, et cetera, et cetera. So we're giving you promo. We're giving you info all the way. It's good to go. So those are two things I would love for you to check out. If you haven't checked out my radio show, The Amanda Seals Show, remember it's available wherever you get your podcasts and in select cities. All right, let's get into this podcast. Before I actually get into it, let me just say one more thing. We're about to be doing some things on this Patreon with Small Doses Podcast, including new bonus episodes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, y'all been talking about it. Y'all been asking for it. So y'all about to start getting bonus episodes of Small Doses Podcast, but it's only going to be available on Patreon. Look out for it. All right, let's get into it. So y'all, this, this is one of them times where I be on the Instagrams and I see something or see someone that is so like immediately instantaneously soul stirring, Mm, soul stirring that I then DM them. And then it's always cool when like I go to hit them and either they, I can't remember if you already followed me or not, but in this case, you hit me back. Definitely did. Are you dead? <laughs> yeah. Richie Resita. I, well, first of all, okay. So I am going to admit to a very rare case of unprofessionalism because I did not, okay. I did not get to watch the documentary between the time that we scheduled this and now that we're shooting this, right? So it's been like three days, so. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> thanks for telling the people. Thanks for telling the people. Thanks for telling the people. Uh, because I was really like, maybe we'll have time to watch it between. And we didn't. But I think that honestly, like my listeners would really relish you taking us through the journey and the process of prison feminism and the project and the just the vision that you had for even what got you to that point. Because when a lot of people talk about feminism, they think, first of all, most people think white women Mm -hmm. because that was by design. (laughs) 
<laughs> they were like, it's mm-hmm. ours. But it doesn't mean that the concept of feminism is white women, like the actual ideas. So first and foremost, mm-hmm. I would love for you to just like introduce yourself to our audience and give them a little bit of a context of who you are. Sure. Well, I'm <laughs> so happy to be here. I'm Richie Reseda. My pronouns are he and him. I was locked up for seven years. I am a social entrepreneur and an abolitionist. I started this organization, Success Stories Program. The the Instagram is Prison Feminism. While I was in prison, because I was blessed enough to have a really beautiful community of women and non-binary people of color who really supported me in my transformation Mm. from even before I got locked up. So as I was in prison and I was reflecting on the choices that I made that contributed to me being there, I just had a tool that I I knew about patriarchy. Like I understood that there was a cultural context in which I was making these choices. You know, I really, I committed three robberies when I was 19. Largely, robbery not is just different me. than burglary, right? Because robbery is like a person and burglary is just the stuff. Yeah, burglary is when you just take stuff, usually out of like a store that's closed, as opposed to robbery is when you take stuff from a person, like going up to the register and being like, give me the money or the goods or whatever. Is it rude to ask people why they were in prison? I think it depends on who's doing it and why. But rudeness is not necessarily a bad thing, (laughs) but it can be rude. I'll take that. I'll take that. that. (laughs) It doesn't feel rude when you do it. I mean, for me, it's like... Well, because I feel like it's I'm a part of the story of like how, you know. Yeah, it's very relevant here. Right. Okay. If I was just like out in the world <laughs> and someone like overheard a conversation, they're like, well, what did you go to prison for? And I can tell they're doing that thing where they're trying to judge Josh. if I'm a worthwhile human being or not. Yes. Yes. Then it's like, fuck, fuck that person, you know. But my actual, I could cuss on here. <laughs> you can say whatever the fuck you so. want. I thought so. <laughs> <laughs> um but for the sake of yeah, for you for understanding, so it. I mean, I talk like about it really openly. That I'm having to. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm having to legit like <laughs> push through. <laughs> you got to push through. You got to stop dating light skins for your own mental health, and then you got to push through. <laughs> You're not wrong. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I'm gonna, I'm gonna screenshot and send to to my my community, and they're gonna be like, "Wow, <laughs> that's crazy." <laughs> okay, so and well. he had also been to prison, so there's like, you know, there's 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 similarities. Damn. So, did you go to prison for robbery? Yeah. For armed robbery? Yes. Why was it seven years? That seems like an excessive amount of time. They tried to give me 150 years to double life. What? Yeah, that's. I mean. This and you're, where, where were you? Los Angeles, California. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. This is the most incarcerated county in the most incarcerated country in the world. And that's what they do. So they counted each individual person in the store, even people who are in the bathroom, or whatever, as its own robbery. Five years for each robbery plus 10 years for the use of the gun. And then they also charge us with two kidnappings because if you move somebody more than three feet using fear, then that's kidnapping. It's the, if you put someone in the trunk of the car or if you just say, get the fuck out of my way or I'll beat your ass, either way, it's seven years to life kidnapping in California. Shut the fuck up. This is, Who came this up is the with system that? we choose every day. Mind you, I'm like, because I'm just saying like, as a person who has no interest in kidnapping, <laughs> <laughs> even if someone were like, get the fuck out the way, I wouldn't feel like I was kidnapped. I'd feel like I was warned. yeah it's that's how they charge it i mean their strategy is to charge you with as many things as possible so you take a plea deal so they don't have to spend the money to go to trial and then they also charge us with assault with a deadly weapon which is completely baseless nobody was assaulted or touched or anything like that but at that point they're just stacking charges to get us to plead out so I fought my case for a year and had a really beautiful community of organizers raise over $10,000 for me to get a private lawyer. And that's ultimately why I got 10 years in prison, 10 years and two strikes instead of the 150. And it's while we were in prison that we organized to change the law. So that ended up doing seven instead of 10. So we have to do a whole other episode with you. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's a lot to cover, yo. It's it's a lot. It takes a lot to um, get about these systems for real. Well, you know, that's exactly what we're talking about, right? Getting about these systems, right? So it's like low key, you were, or high key, you were in a system where then you 
found inspiration to then address a whole other system that got a lot of y'all in that particular system, right? I mean, is it fair to say that toxic masculinity is a large part of what drives what you feel like drove a lot of the folks that were in prison with you to like the crimes that they were doing or being able to see not see beyond their own self-harm? Absolutely. Patriarchy is what drives people to commit a lot of the acts that lead us to prison. And patriarchy is what leads us to believe in prisons in the first place. Without patriarchy, we don't have any of this. Keep, I'm not even going to talk. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> Both of them. Patriarchy is essentially the idea that domination is power. And that like cisgender heterosexual maleness is inherently dominant and inherently powerful. So on my behalf, in my cultural context, as a young person who grew up in L.A., I was seeking to be a worthwhile human by being a quote unquote real man. And real men had money. And I was broke living in cars and shit. So Mm -hmm. I decided to rob stores, you know. And as a culture, we also believe that domination is power. So when somebody quote unquote, hurts us. And I put it in quotes because most people in LA were not affected by my robbery at all. We have to quote unquote, hurt them back in order for there to be quote unquote justice. And that is, it is upon that idea that we build these castles of shame that we call prisons. But if we saw power as connection, if we saw power as integrity, then rather than like, I need to dominate you and force this quote unquote badness out of you, it would be like, you are a legitimate human being trying to suit your needs just like I am. So what need are you trying to suit and what needs to be transformed so you can do that in a way that doesn't harm others? Got you. I would just be curious to hear just how you went from being incarcerated to then being able to share that. I was just like looking through your page and you said you were laughed out of the room the first time. But Mm -hmm. (laughs) what made you get even over the first hump, which is you saying, I want to get in the room? I, so just like a little bit of background, grew up in L.A., I'm an artist. I'm a producer. I produce music. I just directed and edited my first music video fully by myself. I do clothes. And that's always who I wanted to be. And our school system is not designed to foster that. That's not seen as like a legitimate thing to be, especially at that time, the early 2000s, like being into music and musicals and fashion is something that I got made fun of for. Right. Like it wasn't considered like manly, quote unquote, like being into sports or something more based in domination and winning. So the system wasn't really supportive of me as a child. And I went to the Los Angeles Unified School District where we have the LA School Police Department, which is the biggest school police department in the world. It's one of the biggest police departments, period, in the world. It's an independent police department where armed officers are on campuses. And so the way they deal with their students is not through, there's rules that you break, but there's laws that you break and you get tickets and you get arrested. So that was kind of the context I grew up in. And by the time I was in ninth grade, I was selling drugs to get my school clothes and failing out of school. And they put all the kids who are failing in the same classes. And then these two young Black organizers who actually graduated from my school, went to college and came back. They came into the classes and started working with us and started teaching us community organizing. And that's where I got politicized. And that's where I started learning these concepts at first. So I had read Bell Hooks when I was 14 at the end of ninth grade. Who gave you Bell Hooks Before I even went to prison. My mentors, Vitaly and Mark Anthony Johnson and Jason wow. David, Patrice Cullors, like these are the people who um, mentored me as a child. Right. And so I had started reading that when I was 14, 15, 16 years old, but there is still compartmentalization taking place in that. I would try to bring my homies to the march and I would try to bring the like movement to my homies yeah. who are in the streets, but, but it didn't the bridge. mesh. So I was kind of being in both. But that was always still my most supportive community. So when I got locked up, like I was already aware before I got locked up, when I was in the streets, when I was gangbanging, I was already aware that I was making patriarchal choices. I just didn't know how else to be and still be seen as a legitimate human. So when I got into prison, I started just reading Bell Hooks again on my own, just Mm -hmm. like for myself. And maybe it's just the nature of who I am or Hmm. just I can't just sit on it but I was just like I need to share this with others because I was seeing my brothers the people I was locked up with who I love like suffering through the same things what made you see the people that you were locked up with as people who you love because I feel like that's also not like a typical way that people look at the other folks that are sharing a cell with them or maybe that's just the way that it's perceived like on the outside like this idea that it's like in prison it's It's doggy dog. dog It's man, man. Yeah, <laughs> it, it is that. And it's also family building. 
you know, like any other high pressure situation, like there is the hyper individualism that happens of I, I can only trust me and I'm against everybody. But there's also the consolidation that happens where it's like people build family and mm-hmm. raise each other and support each other. And yeah, I was just raised an organizer. I truly feel like an organizer in my heart. And I, I that conversation was not being had in prison. So it started with me just like sharing with my celly. Like I had a celly at the time I was like 21. He was like 28. And every time he referred to women, he referred to them as the B word. Mm-hmm. And then I just remember asking him, like, do you only refer to women as the B word? <laughs> and he was like, man, shut your square ass up. Like, you know, whatever. <laughs> but he didn't hit me. He, the world didn't shatter. And it was like me learning that, like, I don't just have to flow with this culture. Like, I can push back a little mm. bit. And I just built more and more confidence to the point where when I transferred to a medium security prison where they had self-help groups and stuff, but nobody was talking about this, I was like, I'm going to try to talk about this here. McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I've always thought of Black media as a place where we are represented and also protected. As a place where we are uplifted and empowered. And I know that that is sometimes more shown in potential than in actuality. But on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths, we get to see it in real time. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of Blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's Black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the Black experience itself. In Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. From Bobby Shmurda to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations, there's no limit to the range of Black Stories, Black Truths. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. It's NPR Noir. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, nuanced, and belligity Black as the country we reflect. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get podcasts. So I'm coming from a completely ignorant place. Like, I feel like what you are talking about, what you're teaching is enlightening. And I feel like these spaces are absolutely not really about trying to enlighten folks that are in these spaces. And so how much support were you given within the actual like prison to start this program? Or is that something that they were trying to do with different inmates? They were actually one. I feel like you would be open to this. Can I tell you about the word inmate? Please tell me what I'm supposed to not say. Yes. <laughs> I wouldn't say what you're supposed to do or quote unquote supposed to do or what not supposed to nah, do. But, but I can tell you like what it please means. Please school me because I don't know. Thank you. It's a slur for real. Wow. It's a inmate is like a word that's used one to dehumanize incarcerated people to make them something else. Two, it's a word to like pacify all of us into normalizing incarceration. Because it's much harder to say people don't deserve to see their families. Children don't deserve to go outside than it is to say inmates don't deserve to see their families or inmates don't deserve to go outside. And it just gives us this idea that people in there is like, like, quote unquote, inmates at a hospital. Like, we're just here. No, we're not here. We're being held captive. If we try to leave, they will shoot us in the head. Like this extremely violent situation that everyday people are supporting every day. And I feel like it's helpful to just name it as such. So the proper nomenclature would be incarcerated person. Yeah, I would just anything that has the word person in it. Person who's convicted of rape, person who's convicted of murder, person who is incarcerated. Like, then we can deal with a a person can be transformed. A murderer is a piece of trash. Hmm. All right, Richie, come on now. You know what I mean? <laughs> gather me up. Gather me up. <laughs> uh, I appreciate you. But to answer your question, there's a self-help culture 
and like an apparatus for starting self-help groups that was fought for by incarcerated people okay. over the course of decades. Yeah. So that because at first in California, anybody in prison had to go through the parole board to go home. Then in the 70s, they changed it. So some people had determinate sentences where you just go home and your sentence is up. But either way, a lot of people, a quarter of the people in the California prison system are lifers and need to go to the parole board to go home and are asked all these questions about their level of remorse and their level of responsibility and their understanding of what happened. And there is no spaces to actually build that understanding. So incarcerated Mm. people fought for spaces to actually build those understandings. And that's where the self-help groups in prison came from. So by the time I got to a prison that was mostly lifers, Soledad at the time, there's a lot of self-help groups to help dudes learn how to understand those concepts and get out of prison through the parole board. But there wasn't any self-help groups that were talking about patriarchy. So I used that apparatus doing the, my first workshop in somebody else's group. That's why I got laughed out the room. And then being what like, did you we got say that they bo- what, what did you say that was so shockingly humorous to them? Everything. Everything. I wasn't really set up for success anyway. The group was ran by dudes who had been in prison longer than I had been alive. So they're like, here comes this youngster with whatever the fuck he's finna talk about. You know what I'm saying? And I'm talking about something that is kind of like inherently challenging to everybody in the room. And at that time... I was also talking about it in a way that I don't feel like was super like inviting. Mm. Something that we learned in success stories was like, don't teach, connect. Yeah, yeah. If you model vulnerability and you say, here's how I deal with my patriarchy, that invites people into a conversation as opposed to, here's what you should do because you have patriarchy, right? Yeah. And I wasn't fully like the pointing finger vibes, but it was enough that nobody was feeling what I was talking about. I'm just picturing it and like... (laughs) Like, it's a film, by the way, but I'm just picturing it because I know you went in there like, I'm about to burn this shit down. Watch, I'm about to. I thought I was on. (laughs) I had my little notebook. (laughs) They were not feeling me at all. (laughs) What's up? Oppression is up, brother. So talk to me about how this transformed because, you know, some of the footage that I've seen has been really just illuminating to see how responsive the folks in the room of all different ages and ethnic Mm -hmm. backgrounds and I'm sure different convictions, et cetera. You know, they were responsive in such thoughtful and grounded and compassionate ways, which one just attaches to the concept of like this idea that if someone is an incarcerated person, that they are they're done. Like it's a wrap. Like there's no real value for their soul anymore. Mm -hmm. And so that's why they need to be tucked away and forgotten, et cetera, et cetera. There's nothing redemptive there. But, Mm -hmm. you know, this was like on a very basic level. It's just like, well, here you can see proof otherwise. And sometimes people just don't, they don't even consider having to consider something until like something is shown to them. And like, that was also what I was seeing about these men. Like they never had to consider something until something was shown to them. So what do you feel like, was the point where you started to figure out, okay, they listening now. Like, what was that point like? How did that feel? It was when we truly learned to connect instead of educate. Because the, the, what you see in the film, The Feminist on Block Y, was shot after we had been running the program for four years. So we had learned a lot. The very first patriarchy workshop we did, we were all in small groups. We would read these excerpts from Bell Hooks books and discuss them. And it didn't really work because not even the facilitators were on board. And it just was giving school vibes. Yeah. Yeah. It took years to even organize the facilitators. Nobody was feeling me, Amanda. Nobody. Like, no one. (laughs) Thank God I had a community, like I said, of women and non-binary people on the outside. Outside. So I didn't feel like a complete fucking weirdo on the inside. Like, I knew I was connecting to something Why did they think it was so fucking weird? People in prison? The facilitators. For the same reason white people don't want to talk about racism. Because it's uncomfortable and it's where they've learned to build their needs and their confidence in as a human being. Yeah. So what made you say, I need to keep doing this? I mean, there wasn't much else to do. No, there was plenty to do. I was in college full time. I was taking a bunch of other groups. I was learning Spanish. I was like in a whole ass relationship. I had plenty to do. Wait. I was trying. <laughs> this is what, 
like, he's like, what are you talking about? I had a whole very full no, life. I was very busy in prison, truly, and have been busy ever since. I'm trying to unlearn the grind culture that I taught myself in prison. It's really, we talk about the side effects of it. Prison really forces that in you in a different way because you have to be so excellent to get out. Mm. It's like, you can't just be normal. If you're just seen as another quote unquote inmate, they're never going to let you go. So you have to be like, this super excellent ass. Yeah, I trained my body to work 18 hours a day. And, and now it's taking me years to untrain it from that. No breaks. 18 hours a day, seven days a week for years. It's very difficult to undo that. What are you doing to undo it? Like, what are your methods? Taking time to just try to do nothing, which oftentimes leads to me just like crying and feeling like shit. <laughs> mm -hmm. Because my body is like addicted to productivity as its means of telling myself that I'm doing the right thing and I'm doing good. I did too much. The legislative organization we were talking about, Initiate Justice, co-founded that in prison. Success Stories co-founded that in prison. My production company, Question Culture, which is my full-time work now, started that in prison. I was learning the fucking language. I was doing the groups. I was reading 10 books a year. I was learning, like, I was doing too much. And it's like now when I try to do nothing, my body like rejects it. And I end up like crying and hating myself and just having to tell myself, you're fine. This is just called resting. Keep doing it. <laughs> yeah. Are you in therapy for this? I was in therapy for a minute. I need to get back into it for real. Have you tried EMDR? No, what's that? <sighs> EMDR is a type of therapy that focuses on using basically like rapid eye movement to retrain how your brain responds to things. And Whoa. for those who have gone through like talk therapy and have kind of hit a wall with that, it is another form of therapy that is related to kind of a more practical application beyond like the searching. Because a lot of us, if you've been in therapy for quite some time, you've searched, you found, like, you know the math. Like you just, you just explained it. You were like, I worked too hard. My body's response to this. So this is why I do this. Like, you know the math, but that doesn't mean you know the tools or that doesn't mean you know how to like undo the thing. And some of it is so innate in our cellular structure, right? And in our actual like brain mapping that there has to be like an active dedicated effort towards that versus just like mm -hmm. talking mm -hmm. to ourselves, right? And so EMDR is this method that you essentially like tap into a memory and they basically, your eye movement is attached to how your brain responds to things. And so you basically retrain your brain on how to respond to something using eye movement, Whoa. And I've heard really that it's cool. quite successful. And I've heard people have said that they it has been very helpful to them in terms of just on a basic note, like managing a toxicity versus like working through a toxic, like, you know what I'm saying? Like working through mm -hmm. that. And I mean, so the the ex I had that looks just like you, uh, he he I had to put a rocking chair in the room. Because I would want to, in the morning, I would want to pillow talk and just, you know, hang out in the bed. He could not do it because from being incarcerated, he was like, I have to get out of bed. Like, I have to be to moving. I have to be, like, active. And lying in bed feels crazy. Like, and it, like, hurts me. So, like, even getting up mm -hmm. and going to another place and, like, the chair has movement, like, even mm -hmm. just that was, like, a coping mechanism, so to speak. Of course, he was fine with fucking in the morning, but the problem is that stationary <laughs> was the issue. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's fine. So, explain to me, what is feminism to you? Feminism is the active undoing of patriarchal structures and culture. So like thinking about patriarchy, like I was saying earlier, that idea that domination is power and that like cis maleness is the living embodiment of that. That idea has worked itself into every structure. It's the corporate structure. It's the revenge-based prison structure. It's the court structure. It's our relationship structures. It's the structures of marriage. Like all, so Ooh, like Talk every... a little bit more about that. Talk about the structures of marriage. People love to talk about that type of shit. I want to hear you talk about it. <laughs> I mean, marriage is literally invented as the slavery of women. Like they called slavery of black people chattel slavery and they called the slavery of women marriage. <laughs> really? Just, like that's is... just... Yeah. yeah, it was made up to trade women as property yep. because patriarchy happened first. At the end of the Neolithic era, when people started farming, certain people were like, well, if we farm, then we need private property to say what land is mine so that I know what food is mine. And therefore, what we were doing before where 
people had kids and everybody raised everybody. It's like, now I need to know what children are mine because I need to know who I can make work this farm and who I'm responsible to feed. And in order to know what children is mine, I need to know what woman is mine. And boom, you get marriage. And then that goes to Europe and then gets Christianized and become, and then they use Christianity as a weapon, as a sword to hold to all of our necks to colonize the entire planet. So now here we have monogamous marriage as the normative culture that we're all treated like is just regular when it's actually very new to humans. I mean, Brandy and Monica knew about it because they said the boy is mine, you know? <laughs> McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I've always thought of Black media as a place where we are represented and also protected. As a place where we are uplifted and empowered. And I know that that is sometimes more shown in potential than in actuality. But on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths, we get to see it in real time. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of Blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's Black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the Black experience itself. In Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. From Bobby Shmurda to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations, there's no limit to the range of Black stories, Black truths. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. It's NPR Noir. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, nuanced, and belligity Black as the country we reflect. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get podcasts. I think for a lot of us, these concepts are so just naturalized, right? Like they're so organic to the way that we live, that it feels for a lot of people like challenging them is undermining the way that we exist. Like I saw someone on my Instagram yesterday say, without man-made ideas, where would we be? And... That's interesting. That's an interesting concept. And it was in response to the idea that, you know, religion is a man-made concept, you know, that the ideas of heaven and hell are man-made concepts and there may be truth to them, but ultimately like they are drawn from us as humans being like, you know what I think it is? I think this is how it is. And deciding on if that's going to be a tool for elevation or for oppression, et cetera. But when you're in the prison system and you're busy and you're doing everything you're doing and you're teaching these classes, what are you starting to see in like a tangible way shift with the men that you're working with? That's the thing. We weren't teaching classes. We were holding space okay, to connect okay. with you're each very, other. You're very about the language. Okay, yes. No, but, but it, makes, it, it makes such a big difference. <laughs> no, I know. But you <laughs> know what I mean? When they were... Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm not trying to do the fake woke thing where it's like, don't say this to say this. I'm like literally trying to describe something else because when we were teaching classes, it didn't it work. It wasn't working. Right. So once when you we were held holding space, space, what was like the shift that you started to see, if at all, outside of the room? people didn't get in the same fights that they otherwise would. Ah. Because now we have an accountability to each other. When people were like thinking of doing something that's outside of their own integrity, because we never went in there and said, this is right, this is wrong. That would never work. Who the fuck are you? You're in prison just like me. Right. So we had to say, who do you want to be? And now let's look at the ways that patriarchy has gotten in the way of that. Because we open up every season of success stories with people doing their top five. What's their top five most important people and goals? And it always comes back to community and love, their their closest love relationships and taking care of those people and fulfilling themselves. So patriarchy leaves no room for that. Patriarchy is about duty. So we were just holding people accountable to what they said was important to them. So now if you're about to go fight a dude over a $50 bag of weed, 
you're going to talk to us first because you have people who actually care about what you care about. You're not right. just performing patriarchy all day. So yeah, we were keeping each other safe. And that's what we continue to do as we come home. Coming home is extremely difficult. All of us have been in toxic relationships. All of us have been in like fucked up financial situations. A lot of us have gotten reincarcerated. Who cares? We care. We keep each other safe. We check in regularly and be like, what's going on with you? Are your actions lining up with who you want to be? Mm-hmm. How are these systems and these cultures pushing and pulling you to be someone besides who you really like God-born want to be? And I will hold you accountable to who you want to be. And please do the same for me. So if you have trouble with boundaries and people are taking advantage of you, which is very common. I got a homie who, like me, is very quick to give people money, very quick to try to fix. You get out of prison feeling like you're a piece of shit. Everybody was in consensus that you don't deserve shit. When you're in prison, everybody in the world is in consensus that you deserve to be there. So you begin to see yourself as less than. So then you get out here and want to show you're a good person. So every time somebody needs whatever, Mm. help me pay my rent, help me this, help me that. Especially when you get intimate relationships in the mix, which you didn't have for a long time. It gets very messy. So I got homeboys straight up. I'm like, yo, before you fuck with somebody else, like, tell me, bro. I'm requesting that you tell me. And the homie was Mm. like, you're asking me to check in with you before every time I fuck somebody? I was like, you're the one who's telling me every time you fuck somebody, it fucks up your boundaries. You give all your money away. So yes, in support of you, I am making that request. You're an intense person. Am I? I'm a Scorpio. Ah, there it is. (laughs) There it is. As a cancer, uh, I relate. Period. I relate. How do you feel like the COs and the people at the prison who are, I guess, supposedly, you know, in authority positions responded to this work? They were anti. They were hella anti. They tried to put me in the hole for doing this. Shut the fuck up. Yeah, because they have their own political games that they're playing with, like, what group is whose, and I'm this Captain so-and-so, and and I support this group, and I'm Lieutenant so-and-so, and and I support this group, and they use that and their, quote-unquote, pro-rehabilitative stance, which is a myth. There's no no such thing as a pro-rehabilitative prison. You can't rehabilitate me with a gun to my fucking head. But that's the game they like to play and sell the public and use to get their own, you know, promotions or whatever. Yeah. And I'm an abolitionist. I'm not here to buddy up next to no cop or whatever. I'll use whatever resources I need to use that I can be in integrity with to get something done. But we were really for the people and they did not fuck with that. They still don't fuck with me for real. Like, (laughs) you know, like, yeah. And I've been home for five years. So yeah, they tried to put me in the hole behind some he said, she said, whatever, because the some captain had his group who he wanted to support and we were fighting to get signed off on as an official group. And the captain, there was two different captains who can sign off on it. And one of them didn't because he was secretly playing political games. So he thought I wouldn't have access to the other one. I made that shit happen. And I got that shit signed off. And when he found out about it, because I guess there's only so many slots for new groups or whatever, and he wanted his group, he tried to write me up for manipulating staff, which can get you more time in prison. Like literally playing with my life for his little, yeah. Literally that can get you sent to the hole. When you go to the hole, you get more time. Yeah, literally playing with my life for their little political games. They're the same. The cops in the military are gangbangers too. They're just doing it for American flags instead of red and blue rags. It's But it's the same concept. Mars. I'm going to do violence on behalf. Yeah, I did not mean for that to rhyme. But. <laughs> I was like, okay, Cole. <laughs> um, they, I, <laughs> uh, I know, now I'm trying to remember. Um, you said the, the cops, you said- It's still like symbolism. It's still for patriarchy. It's still for ego. It's still like for institution. It's still based on the idea that we have to beat each other to win rather than we have to be in community with each other to win. When I listen to you talk, it's just so glaring how successful this society has made prison a foreign space for like civilians, quote unquote, right? Like there's this, mm. there, there's been a successful chasm created that if you're not in the midst of this, like it's so easy to just not have to consider it. Like that's the goal, right? Because you're saying things, I'm like, even as many dudes as I've dated who, and I've loved, who have done time, it's like, I've never had to go visit any of them. 
in prison mm. because they had already, you know, left. And I never had to like do a bid with them. So like there's certain things that I like just only know from like the locks records and mm. <laughs> and just like from like being just a, a knowledgeable person, right? Who like seeks out information and curiosity. And when I hear these conversations around like there's no such thing as like pro rehabilitation, it only again brings up the reality that like prison as a function is non it's like completely dysfunctional. And for the people who are listening and watching, how do you conceptualize for them a vision of what prison looks like where a group like this can thrive, right? Where like the teaching doesn't have to just happen, not the teaching, the sharing doesn't have to just happen in the room, but is actually like being supported outside of the room, in the cell, you know, at the mess hall, et cetera, et cetera. Like, what does that vision look like for you? Because I know a lot of people, when people talk about like defunding the police or when people talk about abolishing prison, they can't see it. Yes, because they've been convinced that their needs can only be met if other people's needs are not met. So, no, I don't have a vision to give to anybody where human beings can thrive within prison. I don't believe that's a thing. No, I'm not. Sa- no, I'm saying what does it look like for, okay, people do things in society that are harmful. What happens to those people? What in, people in your, do in your In your, in your yeah. vision, what should happen? And I'm saying this because I think so many people, it's very basic. You, you did, did some fuck shit, shit you, you got to get, get fucked fuck now, now, which we've attached to patriarchy. This idea of dominance, this idea of like eye for an eye, this Machiavellian response to things. In your brilliance, can you conceptualize a version of rehabilitation for people that doesn't involve having a gun to your head to get to the trauma that caused you to traumatize another. Yeah, I would would encourage people to look at how they deal with harm in their own families. Oftentimes when harm happens in our family, we don't say, fuck that person, kill that person, burn them at the stake. We say, how do we deal? We still love this person. So how do we deal with the harm and transform their behavior while maintaining the love for this person and keeping them in community as much as possible? For the first 199,000 years of human history, indigenous communities kept each other safe by caring for one another. And they still do, largely. And that's what we do in our own families as well. This whole idea of prison as punishment is extremely new. It was not invented until 1865 at the Reformation of Slavery. The United States saw no need for prisons until the 13th Amendment, where shadow slavery got reformed into only being legal as punishment for a crime. Then they started transforming literal whole-ass plantations into prisons, like the Angola State Penitentiary in Louisiana, which was the Angola Plantation. Right. And then it wasn't until even 60 years after that, into the early like 1920s, where we really started having organized police forces. So policing and the police prison system as we know it is only about 100 years old. So I know it can be hard to envision a world without it because they've done a very good job of convincing us that it's normal. Yeah, but it truly is marketing. Like a very easy history lessons and study of history will show us millions and billions of ways that people have existed without prisons. So I can tell you about some of them, but we don't have enough time. I I really just try to say the most basic one, one. which is... I just want to hear one vision. I didn't ask for all the visions. Your own family. If your mama called you right now and said, baby, I killed somebody, how would you deal with that? You wouldn't be like, cool, Cool, fuck them. No, of course you would care about that. And you would be invested in transforming the conditions and the behaviors that led to that violence and to healing those victims to whatever extent is possible. I think you're you're idealistic in that. I genuinely think- No, that. I do this in real life. I just responded to a domestic violence on no, Saturday. You, I'm tired as fuck. <laughs> you are like this. But like our society, the same society that convinced folks that like prison is cool or not cool, but like prison is, you know, sufficient and makes sense. The same society that upholds Mm -hmm. the patriarchal concepts that you are so steadfast at breaking down for folks like that society itself is traumatized into Mm -hmm. actually I think there is far less community than there needs to be around. Like, like I know plenty of people who, if somebody in their family did some fuck shit, they'd be like, go ahead. <laughs> like, I mean, there's this idea that like you committed a crime, you're, you're done. done. Like you're not valuable anymore because you, even especially if you willfully did something right, that like, what use are you now? So that's why I was asking mm. like, within the real world context of the fact that 
there does have to be a shifting of minds around this. Like there's so many, the patriarchy that causes for a need to have a prison feminism space is so rooted so deep down that, you know, it's the same way that like, when I ask people like picture a world without racism and they're like, I don't even know what that is. But it's like, if you can't envision it, how do you like actualize towards it? And I feel like there's a step before... I mean, I was looking for like a more practical concept of just like, okay, what does that love look like in actuality? Like, because the reality is that I don't know that there's such a thing as a safe society where someone harms you and they are allowed to still have access to you. There is definitely going to have to be boundaries. That's not the same as prison, which is punishment. Touche. Yeah. Their access to you might have to change. It likely will. As an abolitionist, I have to practice very strong boundaries every day. And it doesn't require cops with guns that get bigger and bigger every year to do that. And it's also like, what kind of society are we building that is putting people in the position to harm each other in such wild ways? Because when I was a kid, I was very young, but I was in school when Columbine happened, which was a big deal because it was like the first school shooting. Yeah. Now they happen so often that they don't even make the news anymore. The conditions are getting worse, but what else is happening? We have an economy where the average person is not going to be able to work themselves out of working poverty. We have a society where, like you said, we have less and less community. Like our parents always say, like, back in my day, we all knew each other's kids and left our doors open. And like, you go to a lot of countries that are more close to their indigenous roots, they still live like that. We're farther and farther away. We're more and more individualized. We're deeper, deeper rooted in the idea that my needs are at odds with your needs, which will mean people will try ways to get over on each other. Some will be quote unquote legal. Some will be quote unquote not, which are invented concepts. And the world will become more and more violent. So as a people, as a community, we need to turn back to each other and build those stronger ties. And we can stop that more serious harm from happening. And we'll have more strength to hold boundaries. Without needing the police, ever. (laughs) (laughs) McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I've always thought of Black media as a place where we are represented and also protected. As a place where we are uplifted and empowered. And I know that that is sometimes more shown in potential than in actuality. But on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths, we get to see it in real time. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of Blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's Black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the Black experience itself. In Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. From Bobby Shmurda to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations, there's no limit to the range of Black stories, Black truths. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. It's NPR Noir. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, nuanced, and belligity black as the country we reflect. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get podcasts. I just don't want to get off the topic of prison feminisms because what intrigued me so much about the conversation was not just that it was mm-hmm. happening in prison, but that it really needs to be happening everywhere. Right. Like it's not like these men who are in prison are very far (laughs) in their enacting of patriarchy from those who have not been incarcerated. They just, you know, actualize it in a different way that, you know, may have got them caught up in a humbug. Where do you see patriarchy existing within your own community now that you're outside that you feel like is an effort that you feel like you need to like really like continue to pay attention to? 
to give attention to. I mean, patriarchy is the dominant culture. So I always say like, if you're not swimming against a river, you're flowing with it. So I can tell you what the latest looks like in my own patriarchy battles with myself. Yeah, that's Which is like, yeah, which for me, something that I came into, I was called into a lot of accountability earlier this year by my best friend, who's a non-binary femme, who just pointed out to me how much my own compartmentalization has done so much damage. Hmm. Working on compartmentalization has been the latest frontier of working on patriarchy for me. So for me, that looks like if you, me, and your ex who looks like me are friends, and I know that he is walking around with stories in his head that are damaging to you on a daily basis, it's not just me being like, well, you got to talk to Amanda about that. That ain't got nothing to do with me. It's like me being like, no, I'm not going to silently sign off on you even having an internal story that can lead to harming Amanda. I need to lean in. I need to use all my six foot four of fucking privilege and say- You're the same height. You're the same. (laughs) Are you fucking kidding me? Amanda, I am your ex. I came here. This was me trying to toxically you're get on- back in contact with you. <laughs> I honestly would be, wouldn't even be surprised if you were like, ha that's trippy. I feel like you're literally his doppelganger. Like, because he's the exact opposite of that's all wild. of this. <laughs> um, and so your friend called that out because they felt that you were not challenging yourself to challenge those types of examples of how toxic masculinity displays itself? Because she was harmed by me. Because I'm so close with her as a femme, there's other women in my life who I've dated or been friends with. And and when they feel harmed by me, they go to her. So she's like, bro, there's ways that you're showing up with certain friends that you're not showing up with these other women in your life. And it's leading to harm. So you got to you got to be more aware of how because we're taught to compartmentalize. We're taught that it's a good thing. We're taught that you separate work. So and okay, so in, the, the, in layman's that, terms, you know like you being cool with me, but you being a jackass and a prick over here, and in your mind, it's like this is in this bucket and this is in this bucket. Yeah, I don't know about jackass and a prick, but just like definitely d- showing mean, up differently. <laughs> yeah, but harm is so much more complicated than just like active choices to be harmful. It's based in the conditions and understandings of the moment. You know, I don't know how to say it in like I a short. Cannot way. imagine someone dating you. This is. So difficult. <laughs> Me neither. I don't date no more. I actually stopped. <laughs> truly. I just build friendships. <laughs> I mean, yes, harm is a broad term, but a lot of times it really is not intentional. That's the jackass prick of it. It's it's the right. unintentionality of it. Yeah. And therefore, like undoing it takes like a type of listening. There's another one that's maybe like a little easier to name. A real feminist skill that I've been building in 2023 is listening, mm. like truly listening, listening to understand, listening to believe. Ooh, listening yeah. to believe. Yeah. Shout out my best friend, Haywan Asfa from the Abolition Dream Lab, who taught me these concepts. Listening to believe. It is not what we're taught to do in a domination-based patriarchal no. society. It's we're taught to listen, to respond. Yes. Or what I was doing, which I thought was fucking lit, was listen to be objective. Well, I'll hear your side of the story. I'll hear your side of the story. I'll hear my side of the story. We're going to all put them on the wall of objectivity and we'll decide what quote unquote really happened like they do in fucking court. That's not a thing. There is no wall of objectivity. There's your story and there's my story. I can listen to you. And there might be things in your story like there's things when we did our listening circle that she said that I'm dead ass like, yo, I don't remember that happening. I remember that very differently. But rather than use that as a point of like, now my story has to beat your story and you have to cry uncle and say, my story's right. It's let me just listen to the fact that that has been your story and what that has meant for you and what it now means, how it now transforms me to know that's what's been informing how you show up. And there will be time later for me to share my story and us to come to a collective story. We call in our friends around us. So it's not just us two, but there's more people building a collective story. And that's how the healing is done. But in the moment, let me just be transformed. Let me just watch your experience like I'm watching the movie, which you as the main character and not interrupt it with the commercial of my experience. I'm just going to learn what it's like to be you and what that means for me as somebody who's in relationship to you. And that's listening to transform. And these are, yeah, these are the feminist skills that I've really been, it took me a lot of crying. It was like emotional pushups to have to listen to stories that I experienced differently and 
just listen to them. Why the tears? Like what hurt? It hurt because my story and my understanding of myself also has to do with how I kept myself safe. It is my understanding of myself can feel like it is myself. It was the pain of pulling those things apart. Everybody don't have to see me like I see me for me to be me. Mm-hmm. And especially when I've had deeply traumatic experiences like incarceration, it's like you get out and do the best you can. And then you have people closest to you saying, yo, when you were doing a million things, trying to start all those organizations, here's all the harm you did. Because you actually didn't follow up with that person. Or you actually put this person in power when they weren't ready to and they did a bunch of harm. Or you actually, right, you start hearing all these stories of like the actual impact of moving so fast. And it's like, damn, this hurts because I was literally told that I was a piece of shit who was not worth a fucking piece of bread and had to fight my ass off to get out and try to build things for other people to live better lives. And now you're telling me I hurt you? Are Are you you fucking fucking serious? serious? It's like, I had to learn like, yes, I did hurt them. And that doesn't mean that I didn't have good intentions or I didn't whatever it's, but those things led to harm. The side effects of prison feminism is a lot of people have been harmed by success stories program, prison feminism. And it's been the people who are closest to us. It's been us. It's been the people who work there, the people who facilitate it because we're humans. (laughs) Okay. Well, that's not the side effects of prison feminism. (laughs) Like this episode, like I think it's unfair to qualify. The reality is that in doing harm kind of just can happen. Like exactly (laughs) just in doing harm can happen. Right. Like if people Mm -hmm. are there, then harm can happen because people Mm -hmm. in general are just real available for harm because we're coming with an entire history that we don't even know. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Like, we don't even know our own history in ourselves. Like, there's shit that happened within the first two years of life that we don't even fucking remember, like, in our consciousness, but that we remember in our bodies. And, like, we're responding to something that we don't even know why we're responding to it, but it feels harmful. And then you're like, how do I, I don't even know what to say to you. I just didn't like that shit. Like, I don't know why, but I just didn't like it. So just the, the existence of being human invites harm the same way that the existence of a human can invite hope, right? Like it can invite change. It can invite peace. It invites whatever you invite in eventually, like, right? Like that's the process is like getting to the point where you feel like life isn't happening to you. It's happening Mm -hmm. for you. And I feel like when I look at your work and, and just hearing how your mind works, that is what the undermining of patriarchy can do because we are being controlled by a system. And when we actively start to undo that control mechanism, it is, I, I, you know, I, when you, when you talk about the tears, like to me, it feels like something similar to like, if you had tendons that were like, uh, you know, you were a puppet and these tendons weren't just strings, like they were actual tendons to your skin. Like it would fucking hurt when they're being cut, but you're getting to be more free, you know? And it's just the process of the, the pain to freedom right? Like that pathway. And that's why when people talk about like doing the work, doing the work, like the work is strenuous because Mm -hmm. in this version of society, we are trained to be attached to these things to make something else work. And so many people are fine with that Mm -hmm. to the point where it makes you feel crazy for not being fine with that. But I feel like what you've Just a side note, like, yes, you harm people, but you also like help people. So I think you need to not beat yourself the fuck up too much about that. Like you, I just want to make sure that that's not happening because I just know that, I just know that it's so easy as a water sign. It is very easy to just like dive into that pool and swim around, you know, and get really comfortable in it. But there's something so real about just the basic concept that you said, which is, and I'm paraphrasing, but like. This shit is all around us. You have to choose not to be a part of it. And for men, that's the choice. Like, I remember my homeboy saying to me, like, yo, did you know niggas ain't shit? And I was like, actually, yes, I did know that. (laughs) (laughs) Funny you should ask. I actually am quite, quite aware. And he was like... For some time now. (laughs) um, And he had been through, like, he had, like, done ayahuasca a couple times. And he had, like, went to go to this, like, meditative two-week, like, silent retreat. And that's what he came out of it with. And he actively from that point forward started saying, oh, I'm a part of a system that has never taught me how to be a good person, let alone Mm -hmm. how to be a good man. So like I have to consciously, it's like when George Costanza was like, I'm going to do everything the opposite that I normally would do. I'm not going to get a turkey on rye. I'm going to get a chicken (laughs) salad and I'm going to get it on sourdough. That's the opposite. Like and then things started opening (laughs) up for him. 
But I want to go to our special Patreon section because I want to throw some names out at you. And I want you to, not names, actually, no, this is what I want to do. You made a point where you say patriarchy is everywhere and everything. And I want to throw out to you like a thing and you tell me where patriarchy exists in it. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) All right, y'all, we're going to go to the Patreon. You know what it is, theamandaverse.com. All my SEAL squatters, I'll see you there. The last dose. This has been really great. Thank you for giving us this gift. You know, I I really, this podcast allows me to be in space of sharing. And I do feel like I'm in class, but I really like school. So, so, shout out. But I, I, (laughs) I I learned so much today. And I really am fortunate that you responded to my my DM and that we were able to get you on because the messaging that you have and the intensity that you have, I feel like so many more folks possess it, but they don't necessarily feel like they can expel it. Right. They don't feel like there's like a place for it to be directed towards. And you hmm. managed to do that in one of the most oppressive spaces that any, maybe the most oppressive space someone can be in outside of slavery, right? Uh, Which it actually is slavery because of the 13th Amendment. So there's that. (laughs) So I just want to thank you for your work. Thank you for your service and encourage you you to just also like breathe. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Amanda. Thank you for giving voice to this. Thank you for having me on. This has been so much fun and I am going to do some breathing and maybe even watch Coming to America. Please, she's your <laughs> queen to be. <laughs> I'll get that reference then. It's King Joffrey Joffer. <laughs> I thought you was about to pull out a VHS or a DVD or something. Like you just keep it on you tucked. Like I mean, it's I if I mean honestly, I'd have to go downstairs, but I can walk right to it. I have the DVD. I have the VHS. <laughs> I have the damn. I have the vinyl of the soundtrack. Oh, yes. Can you see I'm coming to America? Yes. So keep doing what you're doing. (laughs) And where can people follow success stories and and learn more about the work? All of the success stories handles are at Prison Feminism on every platform. So tap in. Tap in. All right. Now I'm going to tap out so I don't have to keep looking at my ex. Great. (laughs) (laughs) Uh. (laughs) 